Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, presented by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. And we are remembering Ayrton Senna on the 25th anniversary of his death, May 1st, 1994, at Imola in Italy. Trying to think about ways to celebrate my all-time racing hero on this 25th anniversary. And having written about Senna, I believe, on the 15th anniversary, 20th anniversary as well, and my story of following him being something that I don't believe there's much left there for me to cover. Wanted to do something not only unique, but also something that I think most of you might not have heard if you are fans of Senna, both from watching him live or in person or posthumously. And that's with my pal Terry Griffin. As I mentioned in the opening of our discussion coming up here momentarily, Terry's a massive influence on me as a photographer and I also absolutely idolize Terry and the very small handful of American photographers who covered Formula One in the 1980s and the 1990s. He's been shooting it uh, through the 2000s, 2010s and such. Terry really in this golden era of Formula One, especially when he came in in 1986, this 1.5 liter turbocharged era was just unfathomable in terms of speed and spectacle and car control the drivers the names the pro senna's mansells the pk's the burgers and so on and more that would follow as he was a steady presence at the formula one races on the grand prix trail as we moved into the atmospheric era as michael schumacher made his debut in 1991 and on and on Terry being there, one of so few, plying his trade, bringing home these amazing images, I thought, what better person to bring some new insights, some new stories about Senna than someone who was there for almost the entirety of Senna's career in Formula One. And so we spent about 90 minutes speaking from his shop in the Bay Area here in Berkeley. And it's a very personal topic for him. I can't think of many who are fans of Senna where it isn't a deeply personal topic, not only his loss, but also what he meant and continues to mean to those of us who absolutely idolized him towards the end of our conversation in asking about this 25-year milestone. There's no technical glitches. It's just silence as Terry does his best to keep the tears from streaming down his face. Because still, all these years later, a quarter century later, the emotions of what Senna meant to him and his loss still weigh very heavily on someone who's been around for quite some time, rather than being jaded, just that honest, honest emotion and those tears said a lot. There are some funny stories in here, some wild appreciations as well, and there's a lot of great stuff, as usual. Terry's very mellow guy, but also a a really fun person and someone who's also a pretty darn good storyteller. So trying to bring you something new, knowing that the subject of Senna has been almost exhausted or seemingly exhausted after 25 years. I'm hoping my friend Terry Griffin shares with you what it was like covering Senna starting in 1986. Brought to you in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, presented by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. So Terry, we're here at this somewhat uncomfortable 25th anniversary of Ayrton Senna's death. 
you having been one of America's premier Grand Prix photographers, your photo, your work in the 80s and 90s, as I've told you, it inspired me to want to take photos, even as just a young, dumb mechanic. <laughs> and little would I know that years later, it would morph into me becoming some form of photojournalist. But it's you, John Blakemore, again, in the in the time that I grew up and was following Formula One and just so intently know that your passion for Senna has always been similar if not greater than mine never met the man never was fortunate enough to watch him race live and in person but he was my hero among heroes God among gods and so knowing that we're at this 25th anniversary of his passing a lot of folks are going to be writing and publishing beautiful things today, reflecting on this quarter century. I figured being able to speak with someone like yourself who was there for so much, the majority of his Formula One career as a photographer, as a raconteur and a <laughs> bon vivant and someone that uh, was in the pits, in the paddock, knew a lot of people. It might be interesting for folks to hear just some different sides of what it was like being around Ayrton Senna. Before we get to that, though, Terry, where did your passion and interest for photography come in, and how and when were you able to become one of very few Americans photographing Formula One racing? Mostly it was my upbringing. My father was a photographer. He was a, a graduate art center um, and was a classmate of Peter Brock. Mm. And... Peter Brock actually invited my dad to the 72 or 73. I can't remember what year it was. That was the first time I went to Laguna Seca. And I was in the pits with the team, right? And I was like, wow, this is cool. But it's my dad's friend. My dad was doing the shooting, as always. I didn't own a camera at that point. And I was watching what was happening and seeing what was happening with, with Peter. And he was constantly under pressure so i didn't really get to know him at that point but i mean it was mind-blowing to see his dotsons beating the heck out of corvettes and things of that nature and i was like yeah it feeds into my giant killer kind of volkswagen mentality mm. that i am um, i have right and so uh, later on when i was a crew guy much like yourself i was a, a crew guy for a, a CSRG car with a 57 Lister Corvette that I kept at my old shop up on San Pablo Avenue. And <clears throat> I had a customer who came in and said, oh, wow, look at that car, right? You know, uh, what is that about? And I said, well, it's a vintage racing car. You know, and he wanted to know all the specifics about it, right? And me being the mechanic, you know, and got all geeked out about how much horsepower it had and all that stuff. He asked me if he could help me in the pits. Well, turned out, right, you know, that he he came and he, and he helped me, and he introduced me to people at a Rye Helmet. And I was taking photographs of the car for the, the driver and then started taking pictures for David Love and a lot of the other guys, Dean Watts, all those guys, right, you know, in, the, in that particular era and essentially selling them prints. And I was like, wow, this is crazy, right? You know, 
this is a thing you could do. Yeah, this is like it's something I could do, and I love it, right? You know, because I get to, you know, I love racing and I love mechanics and I, and I love photography, right? You know, and I can actually do some pretty creative things. You know, and the the driver Peter Davis actually gave me a lens, a really nice Nikon two eight. 80 to 200 and that was all manual focus back then and said here try this and that just opened up a whole new world to me right so i told my friend who is a japanese industrialist right you know he he basically knew the people at rai and he got me a, a job with a rai helmet up in montreal and and detroit you know and got me full passes <laughs> to a Formula One race, and I was like, oh, my God, right now. What year? What is, what that was been? 1986. Wow. Yeah. And at that first race, you know, I remember walking up onto the knoll because it used to be a little bit of a, a up and a down right past that, the pits, you know, going out towards that turnaround, right, the old pits. I was, uh, I was watching from that knoll, and I saw my first – Formula One car of that era go by me and go into a corner and it seemed impossible that the thing would stop and turn. And I was like, oh my God, you know. This is your new life. Yeah. And I said, I got to be in this. I have to be in this. So that Montreal race, 1986, that would have been Senna's third season with Mm -hmm. the John Player Lotus team. Right. One and a half liter twin turbo v6 renault didn't always keep the smoke and oil inside but man it it was raging raging uh, until it did surrender most times but i know you mentioned to me that that race happening to be your first your debut uh, you actually got to speak with senna at your very first race which is just inconceivable today yeah i know well what happened was i mean pk and mansell pretty much dominated that race but the guy that was running after him was and driving harder and getting more twitchy in every corner right you know that i was watching as he came by me i was like man this guy's giving it the beans almost like what you see with verstappen now Mm. right i mean just right on the ragged edge of control and (laughs) i was like man this guy is really chasing him down and he blew up somewhere about 150 yards from me, and I was standing right by our Marshall station where there was an opening in the fence, and he pulled that thing right in next to me, right? And he got out of the car, and he, he immediately he jumped up and went to the back of the car and was looking at it, and I walked over, you know, and I started looking at it myself. Being a mechanic, I said, you know, wow, looks like there's lots of, of stuff coming out of the breather. It's either the rings or, you know, something of that and he probably burned a piston right and he says yeah you think so and i was like yeah and we sat there and we talked and he asked me how do i know right you know and i said i'm a mechanic right yeah and then he was very nice to me right i didn't know i didn't know him at all and I knew and him. at this point in time it's fair to say when we think of ayrton senna today it's mount rushmore of legends in 86 the, the the next coming guy 
He wasn't what we would say, quote, Ayrton Senna yet. No, no, he wasn't. And he, you know, but it was really readily apparent from his driving style that he was, you know, as aggressive as anybody, right? You know, I mean, he was really, and I knew that he had won a race at that point because obviously I was a Formula One fan, right? But I didn't know the the extent. You don't see the, the real fine points, not unless you're, I mean, you know that, you know, being by the side of the track, you know, we saw Greg Moore. I mean, you know, when you look at it on TV, you don't see with the, you know, you don't hear the pickup point, right? You know, you don't see where he breaks deeper and all those things that add up to tense every lap, right? You know, on the, on his teammate. And, you know, when you're standing by the side of the circuit, you could see that, right? And you pick up on it, right? And you go, whoa, God, this guy's, you know, that 1% apart, which means in a Grand Prix of 200 miles, He's like a mile and a half ahead. <laughs> and, you know, that's what it turned out to be, right? You know, later in later years, right, I got to understand that he was just a master of car control and, and, and a master of his trade, sort of like Jimi Hendrix was, right, with the guitar, right? I mean, he was just, he was above everybody else. I love the fact, Terry, that true to the Senna mythology, his probing mind wanting to quantify and qualify the credentials of the person he's speaking with. Hmm. Evident even then with you, a guy he'd never met. You're at your first F1 race as a photographer. Senna's car happens to blow up right next to you. You find yourself in a conversation with him. But even then, as a young, you know, third-year F1 driver... You still want to make sure that you're not just pulling this stuff out of your backside. What? Where, how are you qualified to make these comments? Yeah, no, he was, he was very inquisitive and very intelligent, and I think that that's what really, really separated him from ninety percent of the drivers. I mean, the guys that were his teammates. I mean, Prost was no dummy, right? You know, and I, when he went to to McLaren, I thought, you know, this may be the end of this guy, right? You know, because Prost was a devious sort of fellow, right, you know, I mean, with his teammates, right, you know, he played a lot of, you know, background games with them, so to speak, right, you know, to take his psychological edge and use it as much as possible because he was not as fast ever as Senna, you know, and that was, that was the thing, I, I was there for that whole thing, and I got to know Prost very well because I used to eat at, uh, ELF motorhome and that's where he, that's his home right as well and all the French guys that that I knew through Paul Henri Caillé who is my my best friend and traveling partner right you know I mean we used to sit at the table with him and talk you know never with Senna Senna was very private very private you know and very businesslike on a on a on a race weekend you know. so I believe it was your second Formula One race, which would have followed, I believe they were back-to-back going from Montreal 86 to to, Detroit Detroit and not the modern iteration of the Detroit street circuit on Belle Isle, but the actual downtown Cobo Hall, you name it. Potholes, Uh, everything. (laughs) Oh, yeah. They're still searching for some cars that got, F1 cars that got got lost in those potholes. You were telling me about For those who haven't seen the circuit, this old circuit, you certainly should be uh, looking it up on YouTube. But there was, in the final 
sets of corners and complexes, there was a very high-speed blast into a chicane right next to the pit. So you'd either duck left to go to the pits or you'd blast through the chicane. And there were some real consequences if you got too aggressive or your car wasn't handling right through that chicane, chucking it into the wall, onto the front straight. And I know that Senna's treatment there in his Lotus Renault caught your attention as well. Yeah, I mean, that was the first time that I'd been directly head-on with a, a car probably 30 feet from me, right, you know, at speed. 1,000-plus horsepower. Yeah, oh, yeah. And, the, and during qualifying, they did all kinds of stuff. Like, uh, that's where I met Wayne Bennett. Wayne Bennett was working with uh, the Tyrrell at that point, and he was working on the Renault Motors, I was walking back behind the, the garages at that point, right? And I saw him taking the wastegates off of the car for qualifying. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, what are you doing, right? He, sa- he says, well, there's qualifying. He says, you know, this is a one-lap motor, right? And I said, really? He says, I said, you don't even know how much boost you have in that? Right? And Wayne told me, nope, we don't know. We just guess. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Well, the other thing that they were doing, right, you know, was at that point was that Colin Chapman came up with the idea of, or not Colin Chapman, but Peter Wright came up with the idea of actually um, taking the Zeus fasteners and loosening them just an eighth of a turn so they were looser at the back of the diffuser so that as, it, as you went along and you got, went over a couple of bumps, right, it would dislodge in the back and it would flex down and literally ride the ground like a, a, a skirt car. <laughs> and it, some of my pan shots from Mexico show that, right, you know, from, the, from the, the next race in North America, which was in Mexico, you know, that the, the diffuser was separated, right, from that. Jeez. Yeah. So that that was a cheat that they got away with with that car because they were down on power to the Honda. Uh, but um, at that point, right, I was standing there with a whole bunch of flaggers. Looking at this missile coming at you. Yeah, I mean, you could see them coming into the chicane, you know, and hear them coming, you know, because they weren't silent in those days. <laughs> and they came into the 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 left-hander, and then they had to snap the car in mid-corner to make it work. And he was fully, like, 30 to 40 miles an hour faster than anybody else, right? It was, it was crazy how visual it was. And, and I was standing there, and I, and I was taking the pictures, and, and all of a sudden I realized as Senna came through the corner that everybody around me dropped to the ground except me. <laughs> Duck for cover. Yeah. <laughs> and I was standing right behind a pole, right, you know, uh, so that I had a little bit more safety. But it if he would have hit that wall, it would have taken me out. And I, and I was like, oh, my God, this guy is amazing, right, car control. I mean, and I saw him do it one more time right right in front of me like that later in his career yeah i mean he, he he tended to be visually faster and everything and you could tell when he was coming too later after i got used to shooting senna i got to the point where i could hear senna coming because he had an amazing way of 
uh, of repeating his throttle almost almost to a millimeter. Places like Suzuka, the hairpin, right, which is an incredibly hard corner to do without traction control because you're going in and it's canted to the right. Uh, if you're st looking, it's off camber, right? You don't see that on television. You're coming from 180 miles an hour underneath the bridge, going through that kink and then getting up on the brakes. And then you're diving in and the car is trying to lift up the left front wheel. So you're trying to keep from locking that up. And then you're trying to come out of that corner without getting ass happy, right? You know, and oversteering like crazy. And what happens is that you could actually close your eyes and hear Senna coming because he would feather the throttle. Wop, 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 right? As he came out of that corner. And we figured out just by counting from one point to the next, right, that he was easily almost a second faster through that hairpin section than anybody else, right, because of his, the, the way he throttled the car. His, his jabbing approach to using the throttle, especially in slow and mid-speed corners, was completely unique in his era. Uh, the only IndyCar driver that I heard, I don't know if he picked up on it, and he's a fellow Barrier boy, friend of ours, Jimmy Vassar, mm -hmm. where he would do the same thing, but it stood out so much among the other elite drivers. And so, that, again, to your point, that was one of the things that Senna just, I don't know if it was natural style, an articulated choice that he made, but rather than the maximum throttle or a slight lift, and then a progressive resumption of throttle in whichever corner, he, as I perceived it, realized that those are compromises. I'm going to go as fast as I can till I feel that I would have to lift. There's going to be some form of coasting period where it's not just coasting to decrease speed, but it's letting the chassis settle. If you're, like you say, at the hairpin at Suzuka, mm -hmm. you're coming in, the chassis is being loaded in a variety of ways. You're needing it to settle before you can turn the wheel and ask it to do the next thing. But in that intermediate zone where you're transitioning from one action to the next, and most drivers are off throttle, as you would listen to Senna, even just on the broadcasts, you would hear that burp, 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 and realizing that, okay, I can give it a little goose and a little more goose. Mm -hmm. I'm not back to full throttle, but rather than surrender these little fractions of a second of inaction, I can just pep it up a little bit. And, but you're also slightly unsettling the chassis a little bit too and having to manage that on the way out. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah, it, it is fascinating it, from the standpoint of, I think that he was born or he developed the talent of feeling the relationship of, of the application of torque relative to slide, the, the adhesion of the tires. And I think he was so connected to that, right, that that's where he developed that, that, uh, that blipping of the throttle as his own personal traction control. And I really believe that it was, you know, something that he did in carts, you know, very early. Because he used to t talk about, you know, his, his greatest racing was in carts you know in terms of competition and you know how much fun it was but he used to he used to practice every time it would rain you know and 
you have to be very, very, very conscious of, you know, when the car is coming loose from the, uh, from the pavement with those because you, you are the suspension, so to speak, right? You know, your tires are pretty much all there is. And, you know, he, he was a master of that. It was amazing. Do you, do you know Mr. Tanabe? No, know of, but don't know. Yeah, well, I met him in 85 in, in Japan. Right when I was over there for the first time, when I met Hiratoshi Honda as well. But Mr. Tanabe has been a friend of mine ever since, right? He actually owns some pictures of Senna that I did, you know, the one of him working on the car and the one of him in Monaco, right, where he's inside everybody's wheel tracks by yes. like a yard, right? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, he used to talk with me when he was head of the IndyCar project. And one time when we were at Firebird, right, for um, Zanardi's first test, it was me and Art Flores, right? They were the only ones that were invited to that test, right? And as soon as I got there, he's like, oh, Terry, 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 right? You know, like this, right? And I was like, oh, wow, what, what are you doing, right? Yeah. You know, I said, I thought you were still in Formula One. He said, no, they put me over here in charge of the the the." the IndyCar program. And I said, oh, that's great, right? And I said, we'll get to see each other all the time. And we were sitting around talking about this, that, the other thing. And I said, hey, man, what was it like when when Senna came to the team, right? You know, because you were the guy that actually worked with him on the electronics and all that. I said, what, what did you think, right? And he said, well, it was really interesting, right? We put him in the car, and he went out and he did a couple laps, you know, to warm up the tires, right? You know, just familiarize himself with the track a little bit with the car. And then he went in anger. And when he hit the, the what's now called the center curves, all of a sudden, right, the telemetry we were getting back was that, you know, we had a bad throttle switch, right? Because it was going on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off. Mm. So they pulled him in and they changed the throttle switch, set it at zero and full. So it had the full range, right, you know, and set it where he wanted it. And he went back out, and he's, you know, after a couple more laps, right, same thing started happening. And they were like, what the hell is happening? So he pulled him in, right, and he goes, well, you know, why are you guys pulling me in? He says, because you got a bad throttle switch. He says, no, no, no. When they showed him the, the chart, he said, that's how I keep the car on the edge, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's how I keep it, you know, under control is, you know, I, I feather the throttle with with my right foot. And they were all looking at each other. They'd never seen that before. Never. You know, so that to that point, right, you know, of his car control. Then Mr. Tanabe told me, he said, you know, when he first came to the team, he said he was really raw. He didn't know anything technical, right? You know, I mean by comparison to somebody like Prost, who we're used to working with. Because it was Prost's team when he came there, 1988. And, you know, they they asked him, you know, give him feedback. And he says he was giving us really rough feedback, but he was like a sponge. He was always there as late as the engineers were there, asking him tons of questions about what's happening with the with a car from this standpoint, you know, the power curve is wrong for this particular corner, right? I need it to be this way or that way, whatever, right? And he said that by the time that, you know, 93, the end of 93 rolled around, 
and he he went to Williams. He said he was our biggest asset in the car. There was no sensor they had that was as accurate as Ayrton. Ayrton was like totally in charge of giving us technical feedback, and he knew every aspect of the car. And I know that at that Detroit 86 race, that was the first time you got a chance. I don't know if you were just kind of peeking around the corner listening in or, you know, I don't know the the story behind that, but you got a chance at Detroit in 86 to listen to him download to his Lotus engineer, and I would imagine uh, Renault engine engineer as well, after Friday practice. And you said even then, it was just amazing his computer-like ability to recount every little thing that it was the frame rate that he was capturing things on track blew you away. Yeah, every everybody who was there, right? You know, even the public could walk through the garage at that point. You could buy a garage pass. It was in the old Cobalt Hall, and they they had a table much like we have here, like a card table, and they were sitting there out in the open. Him, Johnny Dumfries, right, and all the engineers there right you know duke rouge and all those people and he's sitting in there right and i just edged up and started listening right and then i started taking pictures and he 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 was like gave you a little side eye yeah he he, i have a picture of him giving me the stink eye right you know (laughs) like go away you know (laughs) i know who you are (laughs) it was funny right you know but he's i mean his, his concise uh information was like none other, no other driver I've ever seen, right, before or since, right? I mean, he's probably the sharpest guy that I've ever seen in a car. And that's definitely a part of the Senna legend, too. But again, just interesting to know that if you're thinking about most elite drivers and their personal evolution in the sport, you'll see flashes or rough forms of that brilliance. And it will then take usually three, four, five plus years before you really see that start to harden and become this tool they can wield at any time. Mm-hmm. And again, I just think it's fascinating to hear that you know, by 86, you're still seeing and hearing some of these things that even if they weren't fully developed yet, boy, it sounds like it was way ahead of the curve. Yeah, it was, right? I mean, that's that's a deal. I mean, he he made you pay attention if you were actually interested in the, the nuances of the differences between drivers, right? Because he was so intelligent, right? And he was, you know, you could see it in him, right? You know, he had that drive. He had that, you know, the mass, massive concentration. You know, everything was business, you know. I I never felt like, he was funny with me, right, ever. Mm. You know, he was always business. Whenever I ran into him and I was talking with him, and I, I was around Beatrice Asimpaco, right, you know, who was his PR girl quite a bit, right, you know, because I I really liked her. <laughs> Not a surprise with Terry yeah. Griffin story. <laughs> but, no, she was, she was always really open with me, and, you know, we had fun together, but... When Ayrton would would say, "Okay, it's time for us to go," right? It was like, "Boom, you're you're on it, right? You're going," you know, and that was the end of his 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 deal. He was totally into his craft, right? On the weekends, right? There wasn't no party animal in that guy. <laughs> yeah. Mexico, nineteen eighty six, was another 
item that stood out to you talking about the difference between himself in that Lotus Renault and Nelson Piquet and Nigel Mansell in their Williams Hondas. Again, the coveted, oh my goodness, stand back Honda of that era uh, at Mexico. And I believe it was in the corner leading up to Peraltado, which was the final long sweeping, yeah. which what Senna would end up uh, upside down there a few years later. Yeah, I saw that, actually. I was shooting at the exit of that when that happened. And when he flipped, you know, he, he'd already, because he came into it so quick, he was up in the fence upside down. And I, and I, was, I wasn't taking too many pictures. It, he got out from underneath the car. You know, and I was just so happy to see him get out from underneath there, right? You know, because I, I thought, oh, man, he's done, right? You know, but that corner was a, was a real man's corner, right? If there is a real man corner left in Formula One, that one was uh, as the the big, uh, I think R15 is what they call it at, at Suzuka, mm-hmm. right? That's another big, big balls corner, right? And it... it you know, I mean, it, those are the kind of corners that define you, right? You know, but the the corner leading up to it, if you're going to make any time in the Paratata, you have to carry that speed through the corner before it. And the Williams engineer was standing there with a speed gun, right? <laughs> and we were standing there with him, right? And here comes Mansell and here comes PK. And they're within two or three kilometers per hour of it of uh, each other and then here comes Santa and he's like 30 miles an hour faster than these guys going through there I mean it was ridiculous ridiculous right and you're going how the hell did he do that you know and I wasn't taking pictures I mean I was taking pictures going down the street but I wasn't taking pan shots so I don't know if he was using that cheat of dislodging the rear diffuser, right? You know, and that's the reason why he had so much downforce in that corner. But, man, to be able to have the confidence to do that and car control to do that was just like, man, we were talking about that all night, right? (laughs) And it sounds like your unique ability, Terry, coming from your background, the mechanical background, but also the racing background, is you were not just a artisan with a camera happening to either enjoy the sport or being assigned there and that was just your job for the weekend you had the tools you brought the tools to be able to know what you were seeing and appreciate what you were seeing and it sounds like on top of having a job to do and shooting f1 during this amazing turbo golden era sounds like there's also like me with certain drivers I've been able to do this with where you're just, yeah, okay, I got a job and man, I'm going to, I'm going to put the camera down for a second and just see the, the heroics going on here. Oh yeah. No, we've been at races together, right? You know, and over the years, right? You know, and seen some pretty amazing drivers, right? You know, and, you know it's, it's always, I mean, that's, we're, we're fans first, you know, I mean, you don't, you don't go into motorsport at the level that we're at, right, as a photographer or a journalist or a mechanic to to become wealthy because it's not going to happen. You do it because you love it. Everybody that does is there loves it. And if you don't, right, I question your sanity. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so Monaco 87, 
mm-hmm. was another event that I know that stood out for you. And this, if we're talking about technology, Active Lotus Honda by this point. Yeah. And uh, I, I heard through the people that worked at, at Camel that they had gotten that from the RAF, right? You know, the whole the whole thing with the, the programming of the suspension to keep it dead level, right? You know, that that it was from the Harrier jet, I think, or mm. the one they used in the Falkland Islands, right? You know, that where they bombed the runway so that the the Argentine Army could, or the Air Force couldn't take off, right, because they didn't have that technology, but they could land on it with those those big pock marks in it because it was pick up the wheel so it wouldn't catch. So that was quite astounding because that car, up to that point, I think that was the first win for that car, right? You know, I'm, I'm not positive, but I think it was. And I think you went on to win Detroit that year as yeah, well. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I believe, you know, I have the Grand Prix guide in there. I could refresh my old man memory. <laughs> but what do you recall about this that he, I mean, it was a precursor to what we'll talk about later of, of Donington 93, where at, you know, here's this alien technology, granted by 91, 2, 3, the whole active, you know, 92 in particular, but just it had been in heavy development. By then it was something used by a variety of teams. 87, though. This is some freaky. We're not sure what we got type stuff. Right, exactly, and that was the thing, right? It's like we were we were expecting, you know, that car to break again, right? And it just flat. I mean, he he was in the zone as he normally is in Monaco, and he basically just walked away from the field. I mean, it was actually a boring race, right? You know, because of the fact that you know he had such a technical advantage, plus being Senna. You know, it's like on top of that, right? That's a beat down. You, you, but you know, you. It made you notice him, right? You know, it made you notice that you know he was the guy that was pushing that team forward, right? I mean, because they didn't have the budget that Ferrari did, and they didn't have the budget that McLaren did at that point, right? And for him to beat him in at the most technical race, right, was pretty astounding. And then watching him. You know, as he got more and more confident, right, you know, especially to Tabak, man, <laughs> he was so much faster through there than anybody. It was ridiculous. You know, it, you know at that point, I realized that, you know, I, and I was a Prost fan at that point. And that's sort of the race where I, I said, you know, I have to admit, you know, you know, he, he is the Muhammad Ali of this sport. You know, he is the Jimi Hendrix of this this art, <laughs> this art form. So were you there as well the following year for what has become a pivotal moment in the no, Ayrton story? I was sick. I was sick, right, you know, because I wasn't there, right? And I was physically sick. I had, you know, I had, I had, uh, I had abandoned my plans to go there, right? Paul Henry was there, and he was giving me a blow-by-blow of it as well. <sighs> and, you know, it, I wish I had, I'd have been there, but I've seen other performances by him that that equaled that. Right? I mean, obviously, my my pinnacle 
of his career is Donington. I was at that race, you know, coldest race I've ever been at in my life. You're still drying out. I know, man. No, I mean, I was still taking my hand off the camera after the race, right? Because it froze, <laughs> literally, the, the wind coming across the Midlands, you know, and that, that sleet that was happening, right? It was ridiculous. But it was a magic day for, for Senna. I think he did like eight pit stops or something like that. It was crazy. And he still won the race, right? But you know, the way he put a beat down on Prost, right, you know, in that race, you know, we, we all said, you know, if it's going to be like this today, right, you know, somehow Senna's going to come through. And he did. By the end of the first lap, he had passed eight people or something like that. <laughs> Were you able... Now, granted, today, everybody trackside at, I think, just about every race, <clears throat> whether it's through their phone and earbuds or Bluetooth headset, something. Trackside today, you're hearing live commentary. You've got timing and scoring going. You seemingly can be in one corner at the end of the circuit and know about everything else that's going on elsewhere. That wouldn't have been the case in 93 in the driving rain at Donington. But were you able to, at least in the moment, appreciate knowing where he started on the grid? I don't know where you were shooting the start, but the fact of what his progress happened to be as it was happening. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we, were, we were, Paul and Ree and I are pretty vocal, right? And we, we use a lot of swearing too, right? But no. <laughs> look at that. <laughs> so-and-so, I can't believe that so-and-so is doing this, right? You know, because we were standing right there by the plane. You know, in fact, if you look in, in auto course, right, Paul got the, the, the shot from that start, uh, from that year of auto course, right, um, from Donington. And he used the left side of the lens to, that was our start shot for the airplane. And then as the field came through underneath, right, he got it all. And then we followed him around and we could watch him going up the hill, right? You know, and it was like, he was just, passing people like they were standing still. You know, I mean, you, you, there's plenty of film of it. You know, it's on YouTube and all that stuff. But, you know, that was my vantage point. And then we worked our way back over to the pits. But what was interesting was as they came through on the second lap, right, because it was all transpiring on the first lap, as he came through in the second lap, we, we couldn't believe it. You know, here he was. He was well out in front. You know, by the time you got to where the airplane was, right, which is like two or three turns away, I mean, and it was like, wow, <laughs> you know, it's you know inconceivable that he did that, you know, especially to the the Williams car, right, which is all dominant at that point, you know, Prost just was not any good in the rain. That's all there is to it. I mean, I I remember once in Adelaide, he he literally you know, just seceded the race to Senna, right? You know, when it was really pouring down right, and he pulled into the pits and and retired from the race after the siding lap. And he didn't even go one lap. He didn't do a start. Yeah. He just said, no, not going to do it. So coming out of 87, <clears throat> with Senna being the coming man in Formula One, moves to McLaren, the equally as legendary mp44 chassis that must have been an interesting year for you 
to follow and shoot knowing that Prost had been your favorite and or the one that you respected the most. Here's Senna coming in, his first opportunity to be a front-running, consistent race-winning driver. First chance to vie for a title comes into a team that Prost owns, right? Earned multiple championships with the well-established team leader. And you have this young lion wanting to eat his lunch. Didn't always happen, though, right? This is a year where, in a year where they fought among themselves for the championship, it wasn't necessarily the all Ayrton Senna show. No, it wasn't, right? I mean, he was still young and raw, right? You know, and, and the advantages, right, that, that uh, a car setup that, that Prost had on given circuits gave him a, a slight advantage, right? You know, but you could see it was happening, just like, you know, and let's see. It's like with Vettel with Le- Charles Leclerc at this point, right? I mean, you know that you know, it's only a matter of time before Vettel just says, you know what, I'm done. <laughs> mm. You know, I don't want to be embarrassed by this kid, you know, and it's going to happen. You know, because that kid has so much talent, and he drives. He, he's a more talented driver. He's a more talented racer, for sure. And you could see that in the comparison between Senna and Prost. Prost was a technician, and he set an example for 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 Senna to actually aspire to. I mean, he, his training, his diet, you know, his technical knowledge, which was his biggest weapon. Right, and then his psychological, you know, game that he played. Right, he he was very Machiavellian, right? If you mm. want to say that, right? You know, he basically would take over Senna's mind, and Senna was young, and he he was impressionable, but he became hard very quickly, right? And you know, it was basically got thrown out of the nest, and he learned to fly in probably the the hardest environment. In Formula One, that's you come up against the ch- the current champion and you you beat him in your first year, which Senna did in his first year, and that that was pretty amazing, right? I I think it that was a year that I realized that even though I liked Prost better, right, as a person, right, or a personality. Right, that Senna was by far a better driver, and that there was no turning back at that point. You had mentioned to me that of the things you found interesting to observe throughout the year while shooting the Grand Prix trail, to see how this team that was absolutely Alain Prost's to begin seemed to start shifting towards Senna, maybe similar to your personal shifts, shifts in tide. Was there a point where you started to see or feel that in what you just observed walking by the pits, you know, talking with folks and whatnot, where it seemed like this was going to be the new guy? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you could sense it, right, you know, in the way that, that Ron Dennis was treating him. You know, there, there became more friction over a period of time between Ron Dennis and Prost. Right? You know, 
which culminated in him leaving and going to Ferrari eventually, you know, uh, especially after the, the, uh, the 89 incident, right, at the chicane, right? You know, because everybody knew that, you know, that, that was a racing person and watched the telemetry and everything else that, you know, Prost caused that accident. He would not, you know, and then he acted like he was the victim. You know, it's almost like, you know, a little kid's game, right? <laughs> and ben, Ron Dennis wasn't going for it. You know, he knew exactly what was happening. So, you know, I mean, it was a you know series of steps, you know, that you could just get the feeling. And there were, there, you know, also, Nobuyuki Kawamoto also loved Senna. I mean, he, he looked at Senna and he, as he recognized his talent right away. So... You know, I mean, I'm sure that he was he was talking to the the Honda engineers about who's the better driver mm. as well. So there's a lot of opinion, and you know, those guys they look at the telemetry and they see you know who's on full throttle where, who's who's faster where, and they it's irrefutable at that point, right? You know, the guy who's performing the best is is Senna 99% of the time, so. Interesting, though, we come out of this 88 season where Senna wins his first world championship. Very thin, though, razor thin. Uh, I think victory-wise of the 16 events, it was eight Senna, seven Prost, and one uh, Gerhard Berger. Then move into 89, though. And uh, I'll tell you, as a bullish devotee of Ayrton Senna. I remember betting my boss, Bob Lesnett, mutual <laughs> friend of ours. So again, I'm just a young mechanic at this time working at Sears Point, but living and breathing F1, uh, again, along with other sports too, but um, in particular Senna. <clears throat> Lesnett was diehard Prost fan, and after Senna won the championship, he's like, well, all right, let's bet on 89. I said, Psh, yeah. You sure? You sure you want to? Yeah. And I don't remember. It was twenty bucks, a hundred bucks, something like that. Point being, though, is coming out of '88, I was just like, "This is easy money. This is absolutely how stupid of you to continue to bet on Prost." Yeah, I had to pull that twenty-dollar bill or hundred-dollar bill or whatever it was out of my pocket at the end of the year. Interesting how what seemed to be there's never going to be another world champion as long as Senna is driving, where in that second head-to-head -head season with Prost, no, not the case. Share some thoughts from that 89 season, because you want to talk about fascinating dramas. Yeah, I mean, the 89 season was really the one of, it was probably the biggest battle ever right you know between teammates i think there's more acrimonious you know feelings going on there than anything that i've seen in 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 team sport right you know before or since and uh my memories of it are you know that it was the year that uh you saw all these really crazy things happen. I think that that was the year that Prost claimed that Senna was 
get, was being given priority, and they actually, because John Marie blessed, right, was, you know, a, a big Prost supporter. You know, he actually put pressure on on Honda and and McLaren to actually have a press conference in Adelaide at the last race to say, yeah, we'll let you tear them down. We, it's preposterous that you think that we build different engines for different drivers, right? This is not happening. We don't play favorites. We can't, you know. And, you know, Ron Dennis basically went up in the face of, of Jean-Marie Blessed and said, how dare you, you know, accuse us of, of favoring him over Prost. And Prost was right behind it. He was, he was, you know, needling Jean-Marie Blessed all that time to actually prove that there was favoritism, right? You know, convince him that there was favoritism, you know, because how could he possibly be losing to this, you know, upstart Brazilian? <laughs> so you mentioned you cracked open the door on one of the most memorable single moments in Formula One in decades in my lifetime as well, that being the final chicane at Suzuka, 1989. At the time, I happened to be up watching that live at whatever crazy time that would have been. Um, it was clear to me that that was 100% Alan Prost's fault. I also wasn't a big Prost fan, so that might have tainted things a little bit, but after watching it time and time again, if you remove Senna from the track, just create a, a hypothetical situation where Senna was not on the motor racing circuit, and you look at where Prost started turning the steering wheel, he would have driven onto the grass, right? That's how early he was turning. So just from a, if you strip, sides, allegiances, and whatnot, and just look at things rationally. You can even do that today, again, with technology. You can go frame by frame. You can just see where the steering wheel starts to turn. That wasn't the turn-in point for the corner. Mm -hmm. And knowing the collision that happened, the penalty that was handed down to Prost, um, to Senna for continuing uh, on, on a portion of the, the circuit that was not part of the, regardless of the racing uh, line, et cetera, et cetera. You look at all how that has happened. That became a focal point of the Senna. I don't even really call it a documentary. It's more of a, a, a fan celebration thing. But I was just watching that at home, man. You were there. And that's, again, that's why I love conversations <laughs> with Uncle Terry because you were there for this <laughs> stuff. Tell us about this. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing is, right, is I was further down. I was preparing to shoot the finish, right? You know, so I was down beyond the the chicane, right? And then I was watching on the Diamond Vision thing. It was by the podium, and I was like, holy Christ, you know? What's happening here, right? You know, and then Senna came through with the wing all askew, right? And went around and got a new wing, and, and Prost had retired, and I thought it was, you know, done deal, right? You know, that Senna would win. And then the politics happen, right? Jean-Marie Pelest, who is, I mean, he was a Vichy, 
Yeah, come on. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't going to let his his man down, right? You know. You know, he basically ruled in favor of of Prost in that particular situation. And then I was at the subsequent press conferences where Senna basically pitched a big bitch, right? You know, and said, you know, he he's taking it away from me and taking it away from me and all this stuff. And I think that the next race where I believe it was, that was the race, which was Adelaide, was where they had the big press conference about favoritism. And it was a rejection of the whole nastiness behind the scene of Prost with Jean-Marie Blest, trying to convince him that he was being done wrong that led to him leaving the team, I think. You know, I think it was brewing all year, but that was the point at which, you know, Ron Dennis and most of the people at at McLaren lost all respect for him, you know, for him to do that. And he ended up in Ferrari (laughs) the next year. (laughs) There was another milestone, too, that you were there for, and that was the following year. Oh, yeah. The payback. Yeah. The next, uh, the next chapter in, is ugly. I'll admit, as an American, I, I don't know if it's unique to us, but retribution seems to be a part of our, our DNA makeup. So <laughs> I was never, I know from a sporting standpoint, we should always tell our kids and whatnot, never do such a thing. Got it. That's the high moral ground. I'll also acknowledge that I'm okay with the low moral ground at times. And although, well, granted, Prost did initiate what happened in 89, it was ultimately Jean-Marie Belleste that set things in motion that took the points away and took settled the 89 championship the way that it did. But looking at one year later, you were there for... Good old turn one. Yeah, that, so, boy, I'll tell uh, you, from the chicane to turn one, those two messy years. Yeah, exactly. We, we, Paul and Ree, Kai, uh and I used to travel together all the time, right? And we would, we we would decide who would shoot what, you know. So, I had my three hundred on at the the eighty nine race, which was going to be the decider at Suzuka. And he had his 500. And I was going to shoot the intermediate intermediate, and then follow it as a pan shot into the turn, right, as they went past. And he was going to shoot them coming away from the, the start, two or three shots, and that's it. And we were packed like sardines on that that uh, photo tower. I mean, there was probably a couple hundred people on something that probably shouldn't be that many people. And it wasn't the straight on one. It was the one that was, you know, two drivers left just as you hit the apex there. So they, you know, all day long on, or all night long on Saturday, we heard Senna's, you know, bitching and moaning about the fact that, Bless had switched sides on it, right, and gave him the clean starting slot. Gave Prost to, the to clean Prost. starting slot, yeah, yeah the on the outside, right? And he said, this is bullshit, right? You know, it's part of my French. But uh, <laughs> he ended up 
he ended up saying, you know, that this wasn't fair, this wasn't fair. So I was I was looking and I had my my vest on with my eighty to two hundred in my in my pocket and when they pulled up, you know, nobody said anything. I said, Look at him. He's pointed at Prost. He's gonna hit him. <laughs> I, and you can ver- verify this with Paul and Ricaille. I said that, right? And I had to in that moment stash my 300 lens which is not easy to take off of the camera put it down between my legs as the rest of the cars are coming up to the grid and put my 80 to 200 wider wide angle yeah and then and then pre-focus because there again right it was in the days of barely autofocus cameras right you know and my my f4 i think had a pinion drive in it right which was very slow Right, you know, so I I very rarely used it. Maybe in the pits I used it, but I I didn't do it when I I was always manual focusing. And here they come off the off the uh, the starting lights, right? And he's angling right at him, right? And I said, "Oh my God!" Right? And Paul got his shots with the big six hundred, right? And I got the two intermediary shots, and then the people in front who realized that they were going to hit. Instead of staying sat down, they stood up right in my shot as as they hit, right? So I got, he got the first two shots of them coming away in auto course. I got the second two shots. And then I think some Japanese photographer, and I can't remember who it was, right, got the, the, the shots of him because he was down in the front row and we were almost in the back row, right? You know, but... We watched them as they slid off, and then I have pictures. I went over by the car after they they got out of the car and walked across the track, you know, and walked away. I I got down off of there and went over and looked at both cars, and I was like, blown, I was blown away. I couldn't believe that that happened at that speed, right? But you know, then the famous press conferences, right? And I was sitting with Machado da Silva, who had become my friend at that point. He was, Machado was, was uh, his cousin, right? And he, he ended up being one of the people with Vivian who actually ran the Aaron Sen Foundation. Really nice guy. He was educated in Chicago. So he spoke and, you know, spoke dirty (laughs) in American English. (laughs) And he loved my jokes, right? You know, and I loved his. Lord bless him. (laughs) So we, we ended up in the front row of the, the the Adelaide one where he he admitted that he hit him, and that you know he was crying and all that stuff, right? And we were in the front row going blah 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 blah, blah like this, and Ayrton looked down at us and told us to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny as hell, man. I mean, <laughs> the the way that that, that Jean Marie Blessed ran that organization was a crime mm. you know i mean it was a crime against senna absolutely because senna really you know was wronged and you know Prost took advantage of the whole thing right and he tried to convince everybody you know that you know oh i didn't have anything to do with it really <laughs> really you didn't go to him and say i want you to switch sides on this thing 
Yeah, I'd love to hear that at some point, right? really. I know you've also mentioned your appreciation for Senna when it comes to qualifying performances and oh, yeah. also just some of his rituals in the car. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he used to let me in right to the garage, and this was when you had greater access, right? You know, I mean, now you're at least 30 yards away from the, the guys, right? And they're totally protected, and, you know, it's almost like seeing Mick Jagger backstage. You just don't, yeah. you know? Now they have solid windscreens in front of them, so you can't see them talking to the engineers and all this stuff. And I think it, Formula One loses a bit because of that, you know, because the pictures that you have of those moments of intense concentration, you sure. know, when they're talking with the engineers and stuff is very, they're very, um, they're very indicative of what really happens in Formula One. And we don't get that anymore. Right, uh, or at least not that much. Right, and back then, I, I was on my knees, literally as close as I am to you right now, with my fourteen taking pictures of of Senna in the car as he's going through his ritual of, you know, closing his eyes and, you know, actually st- sitting there turning an imaginary wheel, shifting an imaginary shifter, with his eyes closed going through the lap and the mechanics are absolutely silent mm. right and he, and then he raises his hand which is a signal I'm going to go and he goes out and you can almost bet your bottom dollar he's going to turn fastest lap and get pole position I mean he was just amazing that's what we called him magic center <laughs> You know, that was the thing. Magic Senna. Here he goes. You know, pole position. To that, right, the last year that they were together in, God, what was that? That was 89? The last year they were together. I was at the chicane shooting. Which chicane? The Rundle Street kink, right? It basically comes uphill slightly from Rundle, uh, on Rundle Street, and then it turns through a kink. Right there, it's where Mika Hakkinen did his flying twice. Right, once he had to have a tracheotomy there. The first time he got away with in it. Adelaide. In Adelaide, yeah, which I I still regard as the greatest street circuit oh, yeah. ever, ever. Right, I mean that had everything to it. It was a beautiful circuit, and Ayrton loved it. Right, I mean it was his last win in 1993. Happened there, yeah which was another memory that I'll go over with you. But, you know, I was there in 89. I was out there at the end of qualifying. There was hardly anybody there except for the marshals and me. And I was obviously out looking at that curb that's in the kink, right, because most of the guys would come through and put two wheels on that barely and launch off of it with two wheels in the air. And it was kind of a cool shot. You know, and what happened was it wound down to like 10 seconds before the, the, the flag fell on the session. And Senna was sitting at the hairpin before the start-finish line, waiting 
and he took off with like five seconds left and he crossed the line just as time expired so that lap was good and it was a lone car you could hear it throughout echoing off the buildings in the city right? three and a half liter honda v10 and it was like it made the hair on your neck stand up right you know because you know with the confusion of all the other cars right it's just a, a din but when you hear that one lone car coming right it it's all, almost has a, an effect some kind of ghostly sound to mm. it and <laughs> I'm, I'm like ready to pack it all in right i've got my camera bag there i'm actually taking the lens off right that i've been sticking through the fence it's an 80 to 200 28 same one i shot the start with there and I went back up to shoot that shot of him coming off that curb. And and again, right, all of a sudden, right, he, he comes around that turn. You could hear him. He's hell-bent for leather. And the, while everybody else has come through there and just barely put their left side wheels on that curb, the only thing that's on the track is the right wheel, <laughs> the right side wheels. I mean, the car's at a 45-degree angle. I mean, it's up in the air, like, higher than anybody has ever gone through there, other than Hawking and when he flew up. No, it was four. That was was a a moon launch, though. Yeah, that was a moon launch, right? And I I didn't get that, right? But uh, I got the end of it, right? Mark Sutton got got it in the air, and I was standing right next to him. (laughs) Mm. We always talk about that. But at any rate... He comes into my vision faster than anybody has come through that corner at all, right? I mean, didn't lift at all. Came across, he was at a 45-degree angle with only the right wheels on the track. And he comes off of it sideways. He starts to oversteer like this. And he's, the wall is like this. And he's coming straight at me at a 45-degree angle. And he catches it. And go, goes like this, and I hear beh- from behind me, everybody in these elevated stands go, oh, like this. And I, I turned around, and I realized that everybody has hit the floor except me. Again. Again. <laughs> Again. Your lack of self-preservation. <laughs> we're, we're worried about you. <laughs> I know. Well, I, was, I had my lens through the fence right there. I mean, had he hit, I would have been gone, right? But he ended up setting whole position by nine-tenths of a second, which is a year in Formula One. I mean, it was fantastic. I, w- I wish I could go back. I haven't even looked at the book, you know, one of my fact books, right, the Grand Prix Guide, to see what the difference between him and, and uh, Prost was in that particular session. But that was the moment that I realized the guy had, you know, extra... <laughs> terrestrial <laughs> help or something, you know, to get him through what he does in the car. He was just unbelievable. A couple of years later, you mentioned that 93 Adelaide final race with McLaren, his going away party. He'd been with that team, what, five, six years at that point. Um, it, it, it was his that 93 years with the Ford instead of the Honda, unfortunately, but share some thoughts about being there for that and what you remember of that end of an era. 
Yeah, that was kind of an emotional party, right? Every every year, the Marlboro Party in Adelaide, which ended the year, right? You know, I mean, people like the the you know the premier of the state of South Australia would be there, right? You know, lots and lots of big Australian stars. Greg Norman was there, right? You know, lots of people, you know, and you know, it was really the night to be seen, right? But this year, everybody knew that, you know because Marlboro was a title sponsor of McLaren and that it was Senna's last race with McLaren that, you know, it was like a, a divorce that was happening mm. in slow motion. So, I mean, every photographer that was part of the, the formula one circus, if you will, was there cause they wanted a photo of it. And I have many photos of that night, right? Um, Jad Sharif, who had the Marlboro um, contract at that point, along with Joe Ramirez, who is possibly Senna's best friend in the pit lane, presented him with this collage of shots from his years at McLaren. And I, I don't think there was a dry eye in the house. I know uh, Senna was crying. Mm. You know, and his girlfriend, I can't remember what her name is, the blonde woman, you know, was there, right, which was kind of rare, right, to see her. And it, it was a very emotional night, right, you know, for everybody, right, who really, you know, had come to really admire Ayrton Senna and what he, what he, he was Formula One at that point. I mean, he command. He had that kind of command when he walked in the room, right? He was the guy, you know, like nobody I've seen before or since, right? Not Schumacher never had that. You know, he never had that same panache, right? You know that that Ayrton had. So it was it was a very sad night, and it was a, a an interesting interesting race right you know because he drove that car with so much anger right and we were i remember being with philippe de barcy that weekend who's that he's a, a belgian journalist he was paul pierre's uh best friend okay and he's a journalist and a photographer as well and very good friends with paul Enrique. i think the godfather of kenji and kenzo uh paul Henri's son sons and he and i were standing at at the victoria park corner at the end of the brabham Strait, and we were watching senna come through and qualifying and we were like holy christ i mean he's driving with so much anger in the car i mean he's just making that car do things it shouldn't be able to do as he's coming through because that's a it's a 200 mile an hour straightaway followed by a 120-degree corner. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's, it's like, you know, the guys with big balls do it really, really fast, right, during qualifying. He, he qualified that Ford engine over the, the Renault, which had, he, he was probably, he's probably given up, you know, 100 horsepower or something. I don't know how much. Something ridiculous. Yeah, and... And he and he made Prost look stupid, you know. And then in the race, he he ran away again, right? And he made him look stupid, but 
at the end of the race, at the end of the race, right, it was like, you know, I was like, man, this guy is so head and shoulders above everybody else there. It's it's ridiculous, right, to be able to, you know, be down that much power and be able to beat the hell out of somebody else. Actually, it was a Honda car, right, that year, wasn't Uh, it? 93 would have been the Ford. 92 is Honda's last. No, I think this was the... Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. That was, you know, I'm old, so I get confused. That was the year he won five races with that car. He won five races in a car that was down tremendous amounts of horsepower, you know, and you and it didn't have, you know, the advanced active suspension that the other car had, right? You know, all this stuff, right? And he was like, how does he do it? How does he do it? I, I, I just kept on saying to myself, you know, this guy is like, he's magic. You know, but, you know, that was the end of the year, right? And that in, in 93, he, he knew that, uh, that um, Prost was retiring and that he was going to, to the Williams next year. And he pulled him up on the, on the podium and, you know, he put his arm around him like, you know, hey, amigo, right, you know, it's all finished, right, you know, we can be other people now. And then they went to the press room, and I was with Beatrice Asampaco and, and Bob Considuris, who did the post-race interviews, had the good sense to just back up for a minute and watch what happened. Because when he walked into the room, Senna and Prost were already in this this mode where they were like talking with each other and had let their guards down from Two each old other. warring generals finally without a war. Exactly, exactly. And it was like it, the, the affection that came out there. I think that Brundle was third that year and, and he just went away. He walked out of the press conference. He just left, right, because he knew that you know, this wasn't going to happen. And Constantius didn't have to ask one question. And it went on for like 30 minutes. And I have pictures of him. And I was sitting in the front row. And he, he, he looks like he's, they, they look like they're singing to each other. Wow. Yeah, it is fabulous, right? I even was talking with Beatrice you know, on, on Instant Messenger. I said, the other day, I said, you know, I have those shots and I've never given you any, right? And you were sitting right next to me, you know, and that was the last win for Ayrton, right? And it was really a, a, a big deal, you know, that they made up, right? You know, <laughs> it was, and, and, and it was probably the only press conference where the moderator didn't ask any questions, right? He just let them go. Mm. It was amazing, right? And, you know, I felt really, really privileged to have been there, right? You know, I mean, in that particular moment because, you know, that that probably was the greatest battle between two personalities in the history of Formula One still. No, nothing has come along that's like that, you know. I mean, Vettel sure doesn't measure up to Hamilton. <laughs> I mean, Hamilton is head and shoulders above him, right, you know. And, you know, I don't think that, you know, 
I don't think there was that intensity between Alonzo and Schumacher. You know, I mean, it just didn't produce that that kind of drama. But yeah, I mean, Ayrton was Ayrton was really unusual, right? I mean, he was he was, he was one of a kind guy, and I can only equate it to my other hero, Jimi Hendrix, right? Mm. You know, and I was around him somewhat, right, in Hollywood in the late '60s. He just had that sense of command and, you know, obvious talent that was just out of every pore of his body. Right? One of one. One of one. That's it. So we are closing, Terry, on where we started, this being the seemingly unfathomable 25th anniversary Ayrton Senna's death lived a had lived a almost a quarter century when he died. I've lived a quarter century since he's been gone. He's still a daily central figure in my life, and he hasn't been lapping for twenty five years. That's how much of an impact he made on me. Share some thoughts, and I've written many things over the years at the 15th anniversary and 20th, so that's why I wanted to do something with you for the 25th. Mm. Share some thoughts on this milestone number, uh, reflections on where he sits, where he still resonates for you as someone who were sitting here in your shop in Berkeley, California, I'm staring at the East Bay Formula One group sign in front of me. You have. You get up early every Sunday. There's a Formula One race, as you have for a year, to uh, host and a group of dozens of people that come out to watch Formula One. So even though it's no longer the thing you do uh, shooting-wise uh, for a living, it's still never left your life as a big influence. But what do you think about this 25-year mark? Uh, it still is, you know, it's less painful than it was. I used to cry. When I thought about it too much. Hmm. As I get older, right, and I'm, you know, in in at the end of my life, I think I use, you know the knowledge of you know what what he was right where he took his talent to the nth degree all his god-given talent and the advantages that he had because he was a rich kid growing up not like hamilton where he was coming from poverty right i mean he wasn't poor he used all that right to to do great things in his life and the the greatest thing that I think he did in his life was that he kept it secret how much he he really really cared for other people um particularly the people in his country the Ayrton Senna Foundation that he founded still today is the biggest charitable foundation in South America for for fighting poverty and helping kids with education I mean 25 years later, still the biggest. Name me one 
American athlete that has anything close to that. Even if they have more money than than Ayrton Senna, did they have a bigger heart? Did they have a legacy like his? No, they don't. The greatest thing that he he is is an inspiration to anyone who watched him, right? You know, he lived life exactly the way he wanted to, and he knew the score, and he gave back as much as he could to everybody. And for me, he's an inspiration, you know, more than just about anybody in sport. Well, obviously anybody in sport, but, you know, great scientists, you know, all those, he's, he's right up there with them, right? I mean, he's an anomaly, right, as a race car driver. You know, and, you know, as I, as I get older and I, and I see that, you know, hey, this is what his fate was, it becomes easier for me to uh, come to grips with um, how he died and how suddenly he died. And, yeah, I mean, 25 years, right, is a blink of an eye and an eternity, right, you know. But, you know, it's a long time for us who, who are living, you know. And uh, he's still a very strong influence on me. I mean, he, he's a very strong influence. And it, it's interesting, right? You know, Paul Henri Kaye was the guy who was at that race. I didn't. I wasn't at that race, thankfully. I was planning on going to Monaco the 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 Tuesday after that race, and I remember getting there, and we always got our Kodachrome back from Switzerland on the Wednesday. And I would always help him go through the photos. And he says, look, I, I have stuff as he went by, right? You know, and his, his last thing, he says, just like Jill Villeneuve, he has some of the last pictures of him on track before he crashed and died. And he, he, he says, if you come across that role, let me know, right? You know, so I got the, those pictures, and he sent those off, but I kept looking through, and he had shot a motor drive of it, and Senna went through with Schumacher right on his tail, and for some reason, Paul turned and and sort of panned with the car to keep the focus on on the the Williams, and off to the left rear wheel come came a piece of J.J. Leto's mild seven carbon fiber mm. and I said look at this I said yeah here you go this is this is big right you know because he bounced in that corner I know it so we went to Monaco the next day and we saw Patrick Head and I said we showed him that slide and he said can I keep this because they're trying to say it's our fault and we you know, Paul Henry gave it to him, and it turned out to be a key piece of evidence in the in the trial. But you know, the the whole thing about you know the circuit ab you know just 
absolutely absolving themselves of any kind of wrongdoing in safety and that led up to to Senna's death was really kind of a bad thing because the next day I was sitting between um, JJ Leto at that time was a very good friend of mine and I went into the pit and I was sitting there and Michael came in he was already on the fastest car out there during practice and JJ was out at sea he said let me try your car I want to see if I can drive it faster than you you know I'm driving my own right and I was sitting between Flavio and Michael Schumacher and I asked Michael I said what the hell did you see what do you think happened right he said he bounced he bounced lost control of the car and ran over something no and the tire had had gone down I mean you think about it he'd he'd been on a he'd been idling around right behind the safety car so the t- tire pressures went down he had a puncture from the the accident between Leto and I think I can't remember what the guy's name there was there was a whole ton of accidents there yeah but it was at race. the fir- initial start <laughs> mm-hmm. right and the, there was there was carbon fiber still on the track and he went through it and basically punctured the tire so that tire went down which altered his left side ride height and he hit that bump and the car came off the ground and it went two wheels in two wheels skidding that's all part of the deal right but they say it was the the the, the steering column being welded improperly caused the accident which is bullshit right it broke in the accident and then the other thing that really bothered me about the whole thing was bernie's whole deal about continuing the race 97 i was going out of melbourne with paul and Ree. it's a long walk from the car park to the the bus stop where we could take the bus back into town and we were walking with all of our our gear and all of a sudden we hear somebody behind us beeping the horn and and a guy pulls up and rolls down the window it's sid watkins says, hey, you guys want to ride? Mm. <laughs> I said, yeah, that'd be great. So I got in the front seat with him. Paul's in the back. And I said, you were the first person on the scene. Was he dead? I always wanted to know that, right? And this is a man who was a friend of Bernie Ecclestone's, right? I said, yeah, he was dead. Yeah. I said, what happened? He said, the, the right front upright or the... Uh, A-arm. control arm came back through and went right through his forehead. He had ambionic fluid coming out of his ears. And for all intents and purposes, he was dead. You, you would never, you can't save somebody with that kind of injury. And that really made me think that Bernie Ecclestone is the coldest son of a bitch that ever walked the face of the earth. <laughs> because instead of, you know, saying, you know, let's not do this race. Let's, in honor of Ayrton, call it a day. He basically said, no, the race must go on. And Roland Ratzenberger the day before. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it you know, it was a horrible way for, for that 
his his life to end, right? You know. But if anything over a period of time has taught me anything, it's that you know. You know, he was the most admirable driver I've ever seen. He's also the the, the greatest driver I've ever seen, and he's also an inspirational person, who basically. His legacy lives on not through motor racing so much, but through inspiring lots of kids and funding them still. That's amazing to me. Amazing to think 25 years later, someone who wasn't a family member, a father, a mother, still evokes such emotion, bring tears forth. That says something. That's sad. Very sad. Yeah, but it is what it is. <laughs> you got to see see someone up close, get to know them enough to have a professional relationship and feel comfortable enough to piss them off from time to time, talking in in a uh, in the front row of whatever press conferences. Oh, yeah. It's still pretty amazing. Well, I, I, one time that. He did get funny with me, right? You know, and I realized that you know he didn't show this at the track very often. Was that I was staying in in a uh, in a house in Adelaide. I never stayed in a, in a hotel there. I always would you know book with this this organization that actually had people rent house you know, rooms in people's houses, which is way before the Airbnb thing, right? And uh, I had this one family that I stayed with all the time, and the one of the kids wanted Gerhardt Berger's autograph because a year before, you know, in 1992, he had won the race. And it was his first Formula One race, but he couldn't go this year. Right? He says, oh, could you get me his... Uh, yeah, I can... I can uh, Gerhardt's always around, right? And I can get a... He's a nice guy. You will always do that. I'll get one for you. So I went back and I said, oh, Jesus, right? I forgot. You know, I came back from the car park, you know, probably two hours after qualifying. And I asked Joe Ramirez, who was hanging around there, right? I said, hey, Joe, is is, uh, Gerhardt still here? And he said, yeah, he's debriefing still, right? You know, no problem. He'll he'll be out. And I said, said, yeah, I'll I'll wait. I got to get an autograph for somebody, right? And here comes Senna bopping out with his <laughs> briefcase. <laughs> and uh, I said, how long is, is Gerhardt going to be, right? And he says, why? And I said, well, i got to get a, a, a autograph for this kid that I'm staying with his family here in the city. Really wants Gerhardt's. He says, you sure mine won't do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes, I'm sure yours will do, right? You know, but, you know, you know, and, that, and I just took for granted that he'd always be there, right? You know, I never asked him for a, 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 an autograph. And he says, you sure this isn't for you? <laughs> I said, come on, asshole. I can get, you, <laughs> I can get my, an autograph from you anytime, right? You know? <laughs> he says, yeah, that's true. And he, and he signed it for me. And I said, well, that's good, right? I took it home. I bet you that kid still, you know, you know, he was disappointed that day when I came home. And I said, this is Ayrton Senna. And his father was all enthused, right? But he wasn't, right? You know, and, uh, you know, he's all pissed off at me that I didn't get Gerhardt's 
autograph but man i bet you now he really thinks his lucky stars <laughs> terry thank you for taking some time brother i know this is not uh not always an easy subject for you but i do appreciate you not only making time but opening yourself up to share some of this and uh, you and i have been wanting to do a whole series of podcasts on a variety of stuff so hopefully this is the first of many more people need to know my crazy friend and insp- photographic inspiration, Terry Griffin, because you're a wild man. And we, you told nice stories today. Wait till we start talking about IndyCar and Lord knows what, where the high dollar four-letter words get used, the bleep button. I'm going to have to warm that up for you. Thank you. And that was Terry Griffin. I sure would love to know the name of that little boy who was so upset at not getting his Gerhard Berger autograph and what he thinks today about this rather amazing gift that Terry brought him. Also just fun to hear that that more human side, the uh, unbuttoned side of Senna there, even momentarily in the garage. Also just a beautiful snapshot into a different era where a photographer who knew everyone, obviously at the team, but a photographer late in the day would not only be welcome into the garage, but basically just allowed to stand there and wait for one of the drivers to speak with and interact with them. Just a very different time. Obviously a bit of romanticism about that, but also maybe just indicative of when you have someone like a Terry Griffin who earns the trust of those around him that he does indeed become part of the scene. Well, thank you for listening. I hope that you did enjoy this. If so, let me know. Share some thoughts on if there's anything in particular that you happen to like. And I'll be sure to pass it on to Terry. Terry is not too heavily into social media outside of Facebook. So if you're a Twitter or Instagram person, by and large, you won't be interacting with Terry. But if you do happen to spend time on Facebook, good old Terry Griffin is there, probably posting some heavily left-leaning content. But, you know, again, we, uh, we all love one another regardless of political affiliations or otherwise. If you're new to the podcast or just looking to dive through our back catalog, our brand new MarshallPruittPodcast.com site has all 500 plus episodes categorized in all the different sections that we normally post on a weekly basis. So if you'd like to check out what we've done and get familiar with the kind of podcast that we present, MarshallPruittPodcast.com is the destination. We also have a dedicated subscribe page where you can pick one of the variety of ways that you might either download every episode or live stream what we present. All right. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Thank you for listening.